There are certain situations in life where our response is a matter of life and death. Let me give you an example of this, a pretty obvious example. There's a man uh, whose name is Craig Childs. He is a naturalist, which means that he enjoys studying animals out in the wild. And he spends much of his life out in the wild just following these animals around, studying them, and then writing books about the studies of these animals. And a few years ago, he wrote a book that contained in it an encounter that he had with a mountain lion. Now, most of us would not want to come face to face with a mountain lion, but that's exactly what happened to Craig Childs on this particular day. He was out in the wilderness in Arizona. Uh, he was walking up to a water hole, uh, just some water out there uh, in the wilderness. And he was coming from downwind so that any animals who would be there at the water hole would not be able to smell that he was coming. There was a mountain lion who was sitting there drinking that water that day. And in fact, the mountain lion did not see him right away. And so Craig just stayed at a distance watching it when the mountain lion was done drinking. Uh, she got up and went um, into a grove of junipers, which were right next to the water hole. And so Craig uh, waited for a few minutes uh, for hopefully that mount mountain lion to walk away. And then he went up to the water hole. He was going to examine the, the animal prints around that um, water just to see what had been there. He was going to take some notes about it. And just before he bent over to start looking at the, at the tracks in the, in the mud there, he, he looked at the perimeter around that water hole and saw two eyes staring at him from those junipers. It was the mountain lion. He, and he was hoping that by making eye contact with that mountain lion, the lion would just turn and walk away. But instead, the mountain lion came out of the shadows into the sunlight and was walking towards Craig. I mean, if, if that were me, <laughs> I would be scared. I, I think most people would, and that was actually Craig's response as well. He was pretty scared, but from his research, from his experience that he had with mountain lions, he knew how to respond. He knew what he needed to do and what he definitely should not do in order to make sure that he saved his life. He instinctively pulled out his knife from his side, and I want to read to you, what happened next? He said the mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, and even eight times their size. Their method is to attack from behind, clamp onto the spine at the base of the prey's skull, and snap the spine. The top few vertebrae are the target, housing respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Mountain lions have stalked people for miles. One woman survived an attack and escaped by foot on a road. The lion shortcut the road several miles farther and killed her from behind. I hold firm to my ground and do not, do not even intimate that I will back off. If I run, he says, it is certain. I will have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I will only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground. The canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. The mountain lion begins to move to my left, and I turn keeping my face to it, my knife at my right side. It paces to my right, trying to get around to my other side to get behind me. I turn right, staring at it. My stare is about the only defense I have. And he goes on telling the story that the mountain lion keeps getting closer and closer to him, going back and forth, left to right, left to right, all the while trying to get back behind Craig. He knows that mountain lions attack from behind, and he knows that his only defense is to stay squared up, with the mountain lion to be staring it right in the eyes. And the mountain lion com keeps coming closer and closer till he's only about 10 feet away from Craig. At which point, after he tries to go back and forth a little bit more to no avail, the mountain lion gives up. Turns around, walks back into the forest, and that's the last that Craig sees of this mountain lion. 
Now, it's a pretty incredible story. I would have had no idea how to respond there. I think I probably would have frozen out of fright. Um, I may have wanted to run. I, I've Various times, due to various hiking experiences I've had, I've heard people tell, okay, if you run into this type of animal, you need to do this. If you run into a bear, do this. If you run into a mountain lion, do this. But in the moment, I seriously doubt that I would have remembered exactly how you respond to save your life in that type of situation. But Craig, because he'd been studying mountain lions for years, and because he'd had a little bit of field experience with them, he knew exactly what he needed to do in order to save his life. And he knew what he definitely should not do if he doesn't want to die. He knew the, the, the basic thing is do not turn your back on that mountain lion, but just stare it right in the eyes. It was a matter of life and death for him. That was, it's a very dramatic example. But the reality is that we, even if we don't face matters of physical life and death with mountain lions like Craig uh, Childs did, we still face decisions and situations that are essentially a matter of life and death for us, spiritually speaking. If we want to follow Christ and grow as a faithful follower of Christ, we're going to face situations that will tempt us to walk away from Christ. In fact, Scripture says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we know that we have a spiritual enemy to our souls. We know that, that we have a lot of influences in the world around us uh, that definitely would want to pull us away from Christ. There are many people who are antagonistic to the Christian faith who would like nothing more if we turn their back on Christ and if Christianity ceased to exist. And we know there are also a lot of subtle temptations in our lives as well. These things that look nice on the outside, but in reality, if we give our life to pursuing those things, it's not going to give life at all. We face matters of life and death on a regular basis, particularly spiritually speaking, in terms of decisions we make that are either going to draw us closer to Christ or pull us away. Today we're going to look at that last topic I mentioned, that topic of temptation, and how we can stand firm in the midst of temptation. I invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. Now, James 1 is, um, contains one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture that tells us about temptation. And not just about temptation generically, but about the process that temptation uses, if you want to personify it, to lure us in and pull us away from Christ. Today we're in the second week of our series called Follower Apps. Follower Apps is all about finding applications that we can make to our lives to help us to grow as followers of Christ. Two weeks ago we concluded our Not a Fan series. Not a Fan was a six-week series that was focused on not simply being fans of Jesus in terms of being enthusiastic admirers who like being associated with him but don't like commitment. But instead of being a fan, Jesus is calling us to be wholeheartedly committed to him. But one of the questions that came out of that Not a Fan series was what does it look like for me, a normal person, to follow Christ? I mean, we heard stories about uh, people who were so excited about Christ, they sold everything and moved overseas to be a missionary. We watched uh, DVDs in our life groups that showed this man named Eric who, who uh, quit his job and significantly downsized his lifestyle. We see these dramatic uh, responses that people have to follow in Christ, yet we wonder, does this, is this what it really means for everyone to follow Christ. What does it mean for me in my day-to-day -day life here in Ozaki County to follow Christ? And so that's what this series is looking at that we're going through right now. We're going through the book of James, which is very practical in terms of applications that we can make to our lives to help us grow as followers of Christ on a daily basis. As I said today, we're looking at the topic of temptations and specifically how we can be faithful to God 
in the midst of the temptations that we face. As we prepare ourselves to look at this passage, will you please pray with me? Our Father, we pray that you will be our teacher today, that through Scripture and through your Holy Spirit, that we will learn from you. We recognize that we, um, we are sinful human beings, we are fallible, we, we are easily tempted to follow other paths besides your path, Lord. And I pray that as we open your word today, that you will teach us how we can be more faithful to you as followers of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, where James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to, de to death. <clears throat> Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, today we're going to look at this passage in two different parts. But the first part, um, I, I call the first part the seductive secrets of temptation. What this is is really a behind-the-scenes look at how temptation functions in our life to draw us in to follow things that we really shouldn't follow. Uh, I showed earlier about how Craig Childs knew uh, intimately what he needed to do in order to survive um, a stare-down with a mountain lion. He knew it from a lot of knowledge, a lot of research, a lot of personal experience. He knew how mountain lion would, would respond to various things. This passage for us gives us tidbits that we can apply to our lives in terms of how we can overcome temptation. This is a behind-the-scenes look at how temptation draws us in. And the first thing we see in this passage is that temptation seeks to distort our view of God. You see, James says, when you are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. You kind of wonder, why would someone say that God is tempting them, us? Why would someone say that, that, that they are blaming God for the temptation that comes into their lives? Well, I can think of at least a couple of reasons why someone might say that. One reason goes back to earlier in this passage that we looked at last week. Um, it was about how God works through trials in our lives to refine our faith. We talked about how even sometimes God will bring trials in our lives so that we will grow closer to him. And, and a logical step is to think, well, okay, God can bring trials into our life to refine our faith. Maybe he also brings temptations into our life to refine our faith as well. But James makes it very clear that no, God doesn't do that. It says God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. I think another reason that we might be tempted to blame God is that when we do something wrong, we all have this natural human tendency to not want to accept responsibility ourselves. We want to pin the responsibility on someone else, blame others. And this goes back all the way to Adam and Eve uh, when sin first entered the world. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we see the account of how Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, and then Adam and Eve broke the command that God had given them not to eat that forbidden fruit on that tree. And then listen to what happens next, and you hear the blame game going on. Verse 8 of Genesis 3, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, 
Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you hear what's going on here? It's basically a blame game. God comes to the man, says, What have you done here? And the man points the finger at the woman. So God goes to the woman and asks, Okay, what have you done here? And she points to the serpent, Satan. We don't like to accept responsibility for things that we do wrong. Even if we uh, acknowledge to ourselves that we've done wrong, we don't want to tell someone else that we have. You see in this passage in Genesis 3 that Adam is actually blaming God for the issue here. In verse 12, Adam, sa or Adam says to God, The woman you put here with me. He's not just blaming Eve. He's blaming God and saying, God, this was your idea to put Eve here in the first place. If you hadn't put Eve here, we wouldn't be in this predicament. But this shows how easy it is to point fingers to want to blame someone else. And that's exactly what we do when we are tempted. We may or may not blame God, but we're tempted to blame someone else. But this does point to how temptation oftentimes does distort our view of God. And we may be tempted to blame God when you're going through hard things or going through temptations. You may have heard the phrase being under the influence of something. Um, when you're, most oftentimes that's in reference to being under the influence of alcohol. Uh, when you're under the influence of alcohol, you do, do things and say things and think things you normally wouldn't do and say and think. You have a distorted view of reality based on the influence of alcohol in your life. It's the same thing with temptation. That Temptation, when we are drawn in by it, when we're under the influence of it, it gives us a distorted view of of reality around us, including a distorted view of who God is. You see, when we're being drawn into temptation, oftentimes our view of God is warped in some way. Like, um, think about if you really want to, to do something that you feel like God's telling you not to do, rather than viewing him as some loving Heavenly Father who wants what's best for you, you're probably more likely to view him as some sort of cosmic chaperone that who's looking over your shoulder, criticizing you, wanting to keep you out of trouble, wanting to keep you from having fun. And then, just like teenagers with a chaperone, you may want to try to get out from under his view and do what you want to do and have some fun. But this, isn't, this is a warped view. It's a distorted view of who God is. God, he is not some sort of cosmic chaperone who's trying to keep us from having fun. He's a God who wants to give us life. He wants what's best for us. At other times, when we're facing temptations, we may be tempted to want to do things our own way because we feel like God doesn't care. Rather than a loving Heavenly Father, we sometimes, in the face of temptation, view God as some sort of uncaring uncle who says that he cares, that he wants what's good for us. But in reality, when we look at our lives, we think, does he really care for me that much? If he cared for me, he'd let circumstances work out differently. And so in those circumstances, we're tempted to think, you know what, God really doesn't care so if I want good things to happen in my life, I need to make them happen myself. I need to do things my own way. You see, when we're in the face of temptation, when we're under the influence of temptation, it ends up distorting our whole view of reality, including our view of who God is. We'll be coming back to that more in a few moments. So that's the first thing we need to understand if we want to uh, see the power of temptation, that temptation has a way of distorting our view of God. And next, Paul goes on to say that temptation 
seeks to entice our selfish desires. James says that, that it's not God who tempts us, but in verse 14, each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. You have to ask the question of what makes temptation so tempting? I believe that what makes temptation so tempting in our lives is our selfish desires to want whatever it is that temptation seems to be offering. I mean, there are some things that are tempting to some people, not to others. Um, you could probably share with me uh, temptations that you have that I can't really identify with. I don't have temptations for those things. But then I'd probably be able to share with you temptations I have that you say, why do you find that tempting? That's the way it is, that we each have selfish desires in ourselves. And temptations come along and appeal to our selfish desires to try to lure us in. And really what happens here is that temptation pretty much goes fishing in our lives, trying to pull us in. Temptation appeals to that selfish desire. Um, and just like when you go fishing with a rod and reel, uh, and you want a reel and a fish, temptation tries to lure us in it, so they can pull us in to its grip. When I was growing up, I really enjoyed fishing. I haven't fished that much in quite a while. But as a little kid, I loved fishing. I would harass my dad on a regular basis. Dad, when can we go fishing? When can we go fishing? And I was definitely not a sophisticated fisherman. I oftentimes didn't even know what type of fish I was catching. Um, but I, I would put the worm on the hook, throw it out there, and try to catch the fish. But we all know, even if you don't go fishing much, you know that you need to put some, some sort of bait out there, whether it's a, a worm or salmon eggs or, or lure or some sort of bait to draw the fish in. You don't just throw out the bare hook, do you? I mean, if you catch a fish with a bare hook, I mean, you're lucky and that's it. I don't count on that working very often. Uh, to, to catch a fish, you need to put some sort of bait on the hook. I would oftentimes just use plain worms. Um, and, and the worms are meant, or the other bait is meant to draw in the fish. Uh, they, so they don't pay attention then to the hook. They don't know there's something more sinister underneath. But the fish come, they bite the bait, and then they're hooked. And then you're able to, to pull them in uh, with the rod and reel. And that's the picture of what uh, James is pointing out here, that each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Being dragged away and enticed is a fishing metaphor here where you're enticed to take the bait. And once you take the bait, just like a fish, when you hook them, you're drawn in. Now the bait has to be pretty good though. Uh, back when I was about 10 years old, I went fishing with uh, my grandmother. Um, my, I don't know if my grandmother had ever been fishing in her life before, but we went fishing. Um, I was about 10, my sister was there, and then my two cousins. I was the oldest of the four. And as you can imagine, that was a pretty um, interesting time with 10 little kids going fishing with a grandmother who really didn't fish much. Um, but we, had a good t or we were having a good time. You know, we went to buy some night crawlers at the store, got this nice little white styrofoam package. And at that time, I did not like taking fish off the hook. My grandmother didn't like putting uh, worms on the hook. So we made a deal that if I put worms on the hook, she will take the fish off the hook that we catch. And so we got there to the river where we were going to fish. We opened up the, the, the little um, container of night crawlers, and they're dead. I mean, they're not just kind of dead. They're really dead. They're all shriveled up. Um, I mean, we were too far from anywhere to go get more bait. Uh, so, so I had to uphold my end of the deal, put the night crawlers, uh, the dead ones, shriveled up, um, on the hook. Evidently, the fish did not like that bait that we were putting out there because we didn't catch a single fish that day. But we did catch one turtle. Um, my grandmother w would not uphold her into the deal to take the turtle off the hook. Um, 
But one of the things that shows is that the bait has to be enticing. If the bait is not enticing, maybe turtles might take it on occasion, but fish generally will not take the bait if the bait doesn't look good. It's the same thing for us. The temptation is enticing because it appeals to us in some way. And it's oftentimes because of selfish desires that pull us in. You think about the power of lust. Lust is inherently selfish because we want pleasure for ourselves when we are engaging in lustful activity. You think about materialism. Materialism, that desire to want more and more stuff, it's inherently selfish. Because why do we want more stuff? It's either for our own personal enjoyment or maybe because we want the, the praise of others because we have the stuff. You think about cheating, whether it's cheating on tests or on taxes. People cheat. They're tempted to cheat because of some personal benefit they're going to get out of it. Temptation is appealing to us because it appeals to our selfish desires. I think it's important to recognize that so that we can examine our motives when we are being tempted. So that's one of the, that's the second seductive secret of temptation. It appeals to our selfish desires. And once it appeals to our selfish desires and pulls us in, it sucks us into a trap. James says in verse 15 that after his desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, so we start with temptation. Temptation in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. We even see that Jesus was tempted, yet was, was without sin. But where temptation becomes a sin is when we actually do something to engage with that temptation. When we, when we do act in a way that temptation causes us to, or tells us to act, or, or say what the temptation says we should say. That's when it becomes a sin. So you move from temptation to sin, and then from sin to death. Again, James says that sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. And in fact, Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And, and I think we all know that, that when you give in to sin or give in to temptation, it creates this downward spiral where you need more and more and more to bring that same level of pleasure that you got at the beginning. Oftentimes when you see someone committing some really gross, ugly, public sin, it's not the first time that they've um, been tempted or sinned in that direction. Think about someone who commits or has an affair. I don't know if anyone really wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to have an affair today. Instead, it's a long process, usually over weeks, months, or even years, of little compromises, giving in to little temptations that lead to bigger and bigger temptations until they actually consummate the affair. That's the way it is that we get stuck in a trap when, when we give in to temptation. It's a trap that leads ultimately to death and separation from God. So we see temptation is not really a good thing in our lives. Uh, temptation can be very, very destructive. Um, it, can, it can kill us at times physically, but definitely spiritually. And so James, in, in giving us the beginning of this passage, he tells us some of those seductive secrets of temptation so that we will not be as prone to giving in when temptations come. Just like Craig Childs was able to uh, resist the, the attack of that mountain lion because of his previous knowledge, so hopefully the knowledge that James gives us here in James 1 of temptation can help us be better equipped when we face temptations. One of the things, one of the realities, though, is that we still give in to temptations at times. Even though God gives us a way out of temptations, I mean, he even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no, one, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let be, you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So God will give us a way out of every temptation that comes. But the reality is we still give in to temptations at times. And the beauty of God and his grace for us is that he gives us grace when we give in to temptation. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the death penalty that we deserved because of our sins and because of us giving in to temptation. And even now, Jesus is standing by the throne of God making intercession for us. He is uh, basically our defense attorney saying, you know what? Yes, I see that that person is sinning. I see that that person is given into temptation. But I've already paid the penalty they deserve for their sins. That's the beauty uh, of the gospel that we can embrace as Christians, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, in the latter part of this passage that we're going to look at briefly here, we see James describing the faithfulness of a follower. And this is all about how do we apply follower principles to our lives. James, first of all, says that if followers want to be faithful to God, they need to see the truth about temptation. James says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. See, temptation is deceiving. It intentionally puts out a bait that, that looks nice to us, that appeals to us, but then when we take a bite, it won't ultimately satisfy. It leaves us feeling empty, it, but it'll drag us in even deeper. But temptation oftentimes looks so nice on the outside, and it doesn't uh, say obviously, hey, I'm a temptation that's going to pull you down, so don't eat me. Don't, don't engage with me. A couple years ago, or a, not a couple, a few years ago, Shelley and I were over in Turkey. Uh, we were visiting uh, the biblical city of Ephesus. And along the road there, uh, there were a number of street vendors uh, selling things like uh, watches and sunglasses and, and rugs. There is one sign there that <laughs> just cracked me up, and I, I brought a picture of it this morning um, about some genuine fake watches. I mean, I think there was something lost in translation there. Um, I don't know if you'd really want to advertise genuine fake watches, although I think, um, uh, I mean, a, a little logic would say that, okay, most of the watches there are fake. Most of the Oakley sunglasses are fake. Um, but still, this sign prominently displays that they are genuine fake watches. Reality is, though, that temptation does not put up signs that are that obvious. Uh, temptation does try to, to deceive us. And so we need to use discernment when we're facing things that may be temptations so that we don't give in to them. And I want to give us three questions that we can ask of any sort of tempting situation that can help us discern. Is this a temptation that's going to pull us away from God? Or is this an opportunity that can draw us closer to God? And these three questions are based on those three seductive secrets that we talked about a few moments ago. Here's the first question. How will this affect my relationship with God? There's very little that we do in life that is uh, spiritually neutral. Things we do can either draw us a little bit closer to God or can pull us away from God. Sometimes the effect is not immediate. Sometimes it's not obvious right away. But we need to prayerfully ask, how will this decision I'm about to make affect my relationship with God? Secondly, what is my motivation for wanting this? Uh, we said how many times temptations try to appeal to our, our selfish desires. So we have to ask if we want uh, to have a relationship with someone, if we want to buy this new thing, if we want to uh, go do this certain thing. What are my motives for wanting to do this? What's my motivation? Is it purely selfish? Or is it out of a desire to be a blessing to others and to draw me closer to God? The third question when evaluating possible temptations 
is does this have sinful or addictive consequences? As we said, oftentimes temptation leads to sin that, that can satisfy us for a little period of time, but ultimately it leaves, it leaves us empty and wanting more and more. It's a lot of diminishing returns that, that when someone gives into a little sin, they need more and more and more of that. So we need to ask, is this thing something that's addictive or sinful? There are even some things like, say, ice cream or other things that we naturally inherently want to run to when times get a little bit challenging. We need to even ask ourselves, is that some sort of idol in my life that I'm pursuing for comfort rather than running first to God? So is this thing um, addictive or sinful? So followers see the truth about temptation, and they respond accordingly. And finally in this passage, James says that followers pursue the life that God gives. James points to God himself and says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This points to our gracious, loving, faithful, heavenly Father, saying that God wants to give us good gifts. And the ultimate gift that he gives us is life through Jesus Christ. Earlier we saw that, that sin gives birth to death. But God wants to give birth, us birth to, into life through the word of truth, which is scripture and the gospel. God wants to give us true life. And God's not going to uh, um, in one moment be really nice to us and the next moment be really, really harsh or give us bad gifts. It, it says here that, that God doesn't change. It points to God as the Father of the heavenly lights. And in, in today's culture, that can be a confusing term. What does it mean, Father of the heavenly lights? What's referring to is the entire universe. We have trillions upon trillions of stars in the universe, and God created them all. But we know that the universe is constantly changing. Stars are coming into existence, going out of existence. Uh, whole solar systems and, and galaxies and universes are, are moving and changing all the time. And we even see that movement here on Earth in, in the form of our shadows that as... Uh, the earth goes around the sun, and as the earth rotates, shadows move. But James says that God is not like that. God does not change. God does not move. He is going to be faithful, and he's going to be loving, and he's going to be gracious at all times. And he wants to give you good gifts. Ultimately, this points out life comes from God, and followers see that very clearly. And because they see that life comes from God, they are willing to pursue him wholeheartedly rather than pursuing these other temptations that they think will give them life. A couple weeks ago, we talked about John chapter 6, where uh, Jesus is, has been ministering to crowds for quite a while. The crowds like the show that Jesus is putting on, um, but they aren't fully committed to following him. And so Jesus is giving some hard teaching about following him, and we see that a large majority of the crowd stops following him. They turn away and leave him. Essentially, they give him to temptation of an easier lifestyle than following him. So Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and asks them, hey, do you guys want to leave me too? And I love the words of Peter. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Even though it may have been tempting to succumb to peer pressure or to go back to an easier way of life and following Jesus, they saw that Jesus is the one who gives life. And they're going to do everything they can to stay right there with him. That's what happens when we see the life that God gives us. That any other temptation that comes along, we recognize it's merely a false imitation. It, it, may, it may promise something good, 
but in the end it's going to leave us empty. And so when we see God in His glory and see the blessing and the goodness of the gifts that God gives, everything else is going to pale in comparison. Temptations aren't going to be nearly as tempting any longer. Um, many of you are familiar with how Sports Illustrated has its annual swimsuit issue. Um, in a very sick way, they send out the swimsuit issue uh, to arrive at your house right around Valentine's Day. Um, I subscribe to Sports Illustrated. Thankfully, in the last few years, they've changed their policies. So now you can contact them and say, you don't want to receive the swimsuit issue. And instead, they'll add another issue to the end of your subscription, another regular issue of Sports Illustrated. But back a number of years ago, before they started a new policy where you can decline the swimsuit issue, they sent it out every year. And back in 2004, um, Valentine's Day came. I had been dating Shelly for all of 10 days at that point. I was preparing a nice uh, Valentine's Day date with her. I went to check the mail in my apartment, brought the mail back up into my um, apartment, went through it. Oh, nice. Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue right here um, on Valentine's Day. But I realized that that swimsuit issue has nothing that I need. I realized that the blessing I had in my relationship with Shelley and the blessing that I had in my relationship with God and the life that he gives made any temptation that came in that swimsuit issue pale in comparison. So I picked up that swimsuit issue and said to my roommate, Dan, Dan, see this? Here it goes. And I walked outside and threw it right into the dumpster. And that's what happens when we recognize temptations for what they are. They may look appealing on the outside, but we recognize they really do not bring life. At best, they are false imitations, and they're going to suck us into a trap that's ultimately going to pull us away from following Christ. So when we focus on the goodness of God, on the glory of God, and on the goodness of the gifts that He gives, all the other temptations will be seen as what they are, imitations and deceptions. I want to close today by returning that passage out of Luke 9 that we've been looking at for the last couple of months. In Luke 9, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, which means partially means deny your selfish desires, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? You see, there are a lot of temptations out there that want us to gain the, think that we can gain the world. They, they, they tell us if we pursue them, they're going to give us life that we can't get anywhere else. But Jesus says if we set our heart on pursuing those things that may look tempting on the outside, we're ultimately going to lose the very life that Jesus has to offer us. The way we get life is by following Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are so willing to give us life. We thank you that you loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, while we were caught in that web of temptation and sin, that you sent Jesus to free us. Lord, I pray that you will help us to walk in that freedom. Help us to make wise choices, discerning choices, prayerful choices, that will enable us to follow you rather than following where those temptations want us to go. God, we thank you that even now, even as we stand here or in the sanctuary today, even as we go through our daily lives, that we have Jesus standing at your right hand as our defense attorney, saying that he has already covered uh, the, the penalty that we owe for our sins. Even if we give into temptation today or tomorrow or next week, that Jesus has already paid for that sin if our faith is in him. We thank you for that promise and pray that we will grow in following you in Jesus' name. Amen.